because of a remarkable calculation that was done recently at the World Bank by the economist Branko Milanovic. He wrote it up in a great book published last year called The Haves and the Have-Nots that we recommend. He pools together individual level data on incomes of people all over the world, millions of people, and asks us a simple question. If he takes a person from that data set, uh, he wants to predict their real income. How far can he get towards a perfect prediction of their real income with only one fact about that person and no other characteristic of uh, the, the country they live in? And the answer, uh, which to me is one of the most mind-blowing economic facts about the world, is 60%. Milanovic can predict 60% of the interpersonal variation in real income based only on country of residence. So I want to let that settle in uh, for a minute because, it, because it's really a shocker. This, this doesn't just mean that, uh, that, okay, we're talking about something very important. Uh, we're talking about our real living standards, what determines my real living standard, what determines your real living standard with all sorts of uh, uh, implications for your health, for the opportunities of your children, for your well-being. And this doesn't just mean that where you live, the country you live in, is more important than anything else about you. It means that the country you live in is more important than everything else about you combined. Whether you are hardworking or lazy, female, male, smart, dumb, black, white, beautiful, ugly, your parents were rich, your parents were poor, all that stuff explains a lot of variation. It doesn't come close together as explaining as much variation as, as where you live. So for people who are interested in development, uh, as I think some of you are, the traditional response to this has been, okay, uh, there is inequity between places, we will go develop places. And that's certainly the basis of uh, the uh, U.S. Agency for International Development. Uh, I don't. Uh, I don't argue that that should be the main agenda, the dominant agenda. I, I do want to argue today that there's a complementary agenda, and that is uh, addressing the same thing by opening more opportunities for people to change the place that they live, change the main determinant of their economic prospects. And I want to argue that in three parts. I want to talk about the economic benefits of labor mobility. Uh, the economic costs of labor mobility, and then finish by talking about political feasibility. And any time an economist talks about politics, that's a time to be really skeptical. <laughs> but I want to tell you a, a, a story uh, of an experience I had in, in Washington that I think is thought-provoking about political feasibility. So let's start with benefits. Um, what are the gains to international migration? So here is a high-seas interdiction, uh, starting with my own region. Uh, North America, Caribbean. This is a boat full of 380 Haitians, 18 miles off the coast of Haiti, being stopped by the U.S. Coast Guard in 2004. All 380 people were forcibly repatriated uh, to the north coast of Haiti. Um, here is a gentleman that was on board. And I, I'm, I'm interested in the poverty consequences of this act for this guy. So uh, my co-authors and I have a paper called The Place Premium, which tried to estimate what are the gains to economic gains to immigrating to the U.S. from 42 different countries, doing something like what Milanovic did, pooling millions of uh, uh, observations of microdata from all over the world. And uh, I can tell you with, with great confidence, based on what we know about selection on observables, selection on unobservable traits of migrants, that this guy, if typical, uh, if he had arrived in the U.S., would have multiplied his living standard by something like six or more. Uh, conversely, stopping him, uh, the fact that we did not allow him to come in 2004 means that today, if he wasn't able to leave by some other means, probably his real living standard is 80 to 85% less. So those sound like big numbers. I, I actually think they're inconceivable, at least to my small brain. It's really hard for me to imagine what my life would be like if my living standard went down 85% tomorrow. So I want to show you pictures of what a six times difference in the living standard means. Uh, by, talking, by, by showing you two houses. Uh, the first is in Cabo on the north coast of Haiti. The second is in a neighborhood of Miami, Florida, called Little Haiti, because lots of Haitians uh, live there. So 
here's a house outside of Capitan. And if you're like the majority of the population of Haiti living on less than a dollar a day at US prices, this is the kind of place you can expect to live in in return for working hard all day, every day. Um, here's a house in Little Haiti, in Miami. It uh, would be easily affordable by any low-skill Haitian in the US. So it sold in 2011 for $50,000. I found it on a real estate website. The house payment would be less than $400 a month. And the average Haitian high school dropout in the US makes almost $2,000 a month. So any menial job in the US, no problem living in this place. Here's the kitchen of the house in Kavitian. Here's the kitchen of that house on the real estate website, the same house. Here's the street outside the house in Kavitian. Raw sewage running down the street, kids playing and it's getting sick. No property rights, uh, no police you can call, no electricity. Here's the Google Street View of that house, the same house there on the right that you saw before. Well-functioning sewer under the ground, garbage collection system, electricity, rock-solid property rights you can adjudicate in a court of law, police you can call, an ambulance you can call, a fire you can call. Here is a primary school outside of Kajak Mountain. Here's the closest primary school to that house in Little Haiti. It's named after a Haitian hero. It's called the Toussaint Louverture uh, Elementary School. That's the third grade classroom, packed with intellectually stimulating learning materials, etc. So that's a six times or more uh, change in living standard. And uh, it, it seems that a lot of the efforts of development professionals uh, in the economic sphere could be boiled down to getting people out of houses like that and putting them in that one. And it's interesting to me that this act of interdiction against that particular guy more or less took him out of that house and put him in that. I like development in reverse at this microscopic uh, level. Um, let's go to uh, a more regionally relevant example. Um, this, this is a uh, uh, great work, important work that uh, I, I urge you to get to know if you're not familiar with it because it's, it's new. Two New Zealanders, John Gibson at the, the University of Waikato and uh, David McKenzie, the World Bank, really top uh, brilliant uh, development economists. And they evaluated uh, as a development project the New Zealand uh, Agricultural Seasonal Guest Worker Scheme, the Revenue Seasonal Employer RSC program. Um, I, I'll show you the data that they collect on Tongans. Um, they, uh, they, and aspirationally I, am part of a, a small group of economists working in this area who are trying to uh, be more confident than you typically can in empirical work in this area, that we are measuring the causal relationships between migration and certain outcomes. Uh, you know, if you if you see a difference between Tongan households, one has a migrant in New Zealand, one doesn't, it's always hard to know whether you are observing differences that resulted in the migration or observing differences that resulted from the migration. Gibson and McKenzie's approach to this is that they survey participant and non-participant households uh, at four points in time, over time, starting from before migration began. So they can tell if uh, uh, at least fixed differences among those households at the two-year mark were already there before the migrant migrated. And the bottom line is just unimaginably huge uh, uh, impacts on the income of individuals, sorry, with individuals. So in Tonga, average family income at uh, $1,400 per year for the whole household each of these workers in one season making $12,000. So kind of like the Haiti example, we're talking about order of magnitude difference in earning potential. Really a vast arbitrage opportunity when you think about it. It's not easy to find two assets, two goods that sell for thousand percent difference in two different markets. Uh, but labor is that way in the world. That's this, this astonishing fact about the world. How about their families? So their family income, including remittances, goes up 30%. That doesn't include repatriated savings that they're not sending home every month. The, the, the chunk that they bring home at the end is two or three hundred percent of uh, annual uh, income. Um, a lot of what they spend it on is school fees. So there's a 20 percentage point increase in the propensity of high school aged uh, Tongan kids in these households to actually be in school. Uh, lots of durable goods acquisition. 50 percent increase in subjective well-being. They, they do this uh, 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 asking uh, how do you feel about your life? How happy are you in your circumstances? And that goes way up causally. Uh, they go beyond any work that I have in this area, even to the community level. 
an observational question. Get together some leaders from each of these communities and ask them after two years, what do you think the effect of, on the community of participating in this uh, program has been? They can answer negative, neutral, or positive. 92% of the community leaders say positive. So a lot of the doomsday scenarios of family disintegration and uh, I don't know what else that people talk about either aren't happening or are invisible to the community leaders that these guys are talking about. That's why Gibson and McKenzie call this among the most effective vote projects ever evaluated. And, and that's just a, that, that's an astonishing statement. We're talking about guys picking fruit in New Zealand. This isn't what people think of as a development project. And yet it's not just more effective than a lot of other efforts in this area. It's infinitely more cost-effective. And I say that because the cost is negative to New Zealand. These guys are out there picking fruit, adding value to the New Zealand economy, not taking one dollar from anybody. Um, now, when I show numbers like this around uh, DC, we're th thinking of this, uh, this, this overlap between migration and development is not common. Uh, a, a common reaction that I get is, well, I mean, this can't be the solution for everybody in Haiti. And uh, I think it is, it is both obviously true that migration can't be the solution for all poverty and PNG, and also not very useful. Uh, we don't decide whether or not to build a school in PNG based on whether or not every child in PNG can attend that school. We decide to build a school in PNG based on whether or not that is the most effective next thing that we can do. And for a lot of people, this is the most effective next thing that could happen. Not arguing at all that it replaced the traditional agenda, but why not complement it when there are these opportunities for free? Um, another common reaction that I get on Haiti, uh, I'm going to talk more about Haiti later, is, uh, but you don't understand where we're trying to develop Haiti so that people don't leave. These are the opposites when you're talking about complementarity. And I think that this, uh, I think that that mindset underestimates the challenge of causing economic development in every place on Earth. And to, to illustrate that, I want to uh, bring another local example. So here is Sydney, with a GDP of $290 billion a year. That's the economic product of greater metropolitan city, more or less, uh, as noted by McKinsey. The GDP of Vanuatu is less than $900 million a year, or about 1 350th of just Sydney. So the thought exercise I propose to uh, my interlocutors in those kind of conversations is, okay, let's take a couple of pretty small neighborhoods of city, in this case, Redfern and Fairfield, and build a fence around them, a really high impermeable fence so that nobody can leave, and try to foster economic prosperity within that little space by other means, by trade, you know, trade through the fence throw A over the fence. Um, I think it's intuitive to a lot of people that um, unless people from those neighborhoods can physically circulate around, go study in other places, learn stuff, interact with people, make business connections, do all the things that are involved in creating the economy that is city, they would be permanently impoverished. And no amount of trading through the fence could substitute for that or encourage lots of firms to invest in there or anything else. In economic terms, this is what we're thinking of when we're saying, let's have a development strategy for Vanuatu that does not involve labor mobility. I'm not saying these are exactly the same thing, but I think it really underscores uh, the, the, the challenges of dealing with economic specs. And I don't, uh, I don't want to disparage Vanuatu when I say it's, a, it's a, an economic spec. It's just an extremely tiny economy. And, and, uh, 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 I think a quantitative understanding of this is, is uh, helpful. So that's enough about benefits. Let's get to costs. Because at least in the US, this is what's really on people's mind when you talk about migration. What are the costs at the origin? What are the costs at the destination? But I want to talk about each of those for a little bit. The, the most common cost at the origin that people bring up, certainly with regards to the on Haiti, is brain drain. Skilled people leaving Haiti uh, is bad and must be stopped by some means. People question, you know, should we be letting in as many skilled Haitians because of the potential effects of the and uh, to try to uh, illustrate why I'm very uncomfortable with statements like that, and try to, to urge a different way of thinking about skilled migration, I want to compare international movements of skilled people to 
tiny little islands. On way over there is India and China. And the vertical axis here is the fraction of skilled people who are outside. That is, it, it's the uh, of people born in that country who have a university degree in census data. It's the fraction who are not living there, but instead living in a rich overseas country. So you see Samoa and Tonga up there, near 80 percent. Um, Fiji uh, at about two thirds. A few years ago, it's probably a little higher now. Uh, but huge majorities of the skilled workers living outside. And a lot of people look at this graph and say, you know, that's bad. We have to stop this movement. And uh, what I'm going to do is just take off the country names. Those are the same dots. And I'm going to superimpose domestic movements on exactly the same graph. So those, I don't know if you can see the blue in the back, but those are the, the 50 states of America plus uh, the District of Columbia. Uh, so that's me, for example. I was born in New York City, I lived in Washington, D.C., and I have a university degree. Um, those are the 26 states of Brazil plus the federal district. Those are provinces of the Philippines. Those are districts of Kenya. Exactly the same uh, 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 horizontal axis and vertical axis. The size of the district and population, fraction of people with a tertiary degree in the census data from that country uh, who are not living in the place that they were born and living somewhere else. And I just wanted to illustrate that the propensity of skilled Kenyans to not live in small, isolated, poor places where they were born is the same. Or even for a lot of countries greater than the propensity of skilled people born in places that happen to be countries that are small, isolated, and poor. The economic forces are, are not that different. We, we tend to think about these things completely differently. Uh, so here's another thought exercise. Uh, what's the development strategy for Tasmania? If, if uh, we're concerned about skilled people born in Tasmania leaving Tasmania, um, if Tasmania were to secede and become a different country, then people might start asking uh, the kind of questions that they ask about Haiti or about Fiji. Should we be letting these people in? Uh, is it unethical to be recruiting them to come to the mainland? And recruitment is just going to Hobart and putting out an ad. Recruitment isn't hog time, people putting them on ships, it's just providing information to them. Uh, should we be self-sufficient on the mainland so that there are no jobs left over for people from Tasmania? This is the World Health Organization's explicit recommendation on health workers, is that countries like Australia and the US should be self-sufficient so that there are no jobs left over for countries who are health professionals. All those things start to sound crazy when you think about Tasmania. First of all, unethical. Banning, providing information about jobs in Sydney to people in robot. Second of all, ineffective. Does anybody really think that that would result in an efflorescence of development in Tasmania? Uh, but suddenly, if Tasmania seceded and became a different country, they would be ethical and effective? I think the economics are very, very parallel. It's just how we think about it. And I actually think that when we're talking about Tasmania, <clears throat> uh, it is intuitive that the very ability to move is part of the return to investment in human capital. Certainly some part of the reason why people from Hobart would get good education there is the prospect of moving to Melbourne, to Sydney, even if they never did. And I, I think even that uh, uh, economic phenomenon also happens at the international level. And Satish and I have a little evidence on that. So, uh, we have a paper on skilled uh, immigration from Fiji. And here is uh, the, uh, the population of Fiji over 130 years in green. Total population. Uh, in blue, indigenous Fiji Islander. Uh, in red, Fiji Islander of South Asian origin, or what's called Indian uh, there. And if you know the history of Fiji, after a 1986, uh, uh, 1987 coup that uh, severely disadvantaged, at least in their uh, perception, uh, Indians' future prospects in Fiji, they started to leave en masse. As you can see, something like a quarter to a third of the population versus what it might have been has just departed Fiji, just a vast exodus, one of the biggest in relative terms from any developing country, certainly in recent history. Uh, very heavily skill-focused. Most of them went to Australia or New Zealand. Most of them went on settler visas. And a huge majority of those settler visas are in skilled categories. So basically, these are highly educated Indians. And 
The question is, what happened to the stock of steel Indians in Fiji? So this is just the raw number of people in the census who have a university degree, any age and any kind of university degree, Indian versus Fijian, Fijian and blue, Indian and red. And notice, Indians went up at a time between 1986 and 1996 that the population of Indians was in absolute decline. The whole population was like this. The population of, of skill was like that. That is, the coup didn't just cause a huge uh, immigration. It also caused, somehow, huge investment in human capital. And what we showed in our paper is it caused huge investment in human capital because of the immigration. That is, Indians didn't just pour into tertiary education in order to get enough points to get out. They poured into precisely the disciplines that would get them enough points to get out. In, in the age groups in which they would have enough points to get out. Um, what I'm saying is uh, the returns to human capital at uh, migration destinations can shape investment in human capital at origins, even when there are other countries, not just in Tasmania, which is perfectly uh, intuitive, but everywhere, even places quite far away. So uh, uh, let's get to the destination. In the, in the U.S., this is what really makes people crazy about immigration. Is what do these people going to do to us? And this, uh, this, uh, there's, a, there's a large non-economic component to this discussion, but certainly in the U.S., a big part of it is economic. Particularly in the, in the midst of the global financial crisis, we've had 10% unemployment, and a lot of the rhetoric about the impacts of immigration has been on uh, uh, displacement of natives by immigrants. So, I, I, I want to just uh, get rid of one entire part of this discussion right away. And it's the long-term effects of immigration on unemployment. There's no point in even discussing those. They're zero. And the reason that I know that is because uh, people here debate about big Australia and small Australia. We've run the experiment of big U.S. So there's the population of the U.S. in relative size in 1900. It was 75 million people. Now it's over 300 million people. The majority of that came through immigration, not through vegetative growth. And here's unemployment at those two times. Exactly the same. That is, in the long term, every single immigrant, on average, generated exactly one job. And the way that they did that is because immigrants aren't just sellers of labor, they are also consumers of the produce of other people's labor. They become part of the economy. They create as many jobs as they take in the long term. So we can just forget about the long term and talk only about temporary transitional displacement. Um, there's a huge uh, literature about this. I, I, I can't give it a nuanced uh, summary, although many in the room could, like Tim and, and others. Um, I just want to highlight one study, which may be the, the most cited in this literature. It's a 1990 paper by David Card of the University of California, Berkeley, who studies this, the Mariel Booklet. These are some Marielitos arriving in Miami. It was a one-off agreement between President Jimmy Carter and Fidel Castro in the early 1980s that resulted in the sudden arrival of 125,000 uh, Cuban refugees in the Miami area. Uh, about 80% of them settled permanently in the Miami area. So we're talking about a three-month increase of 7% in the labor force. It's a gigantic, sudden, unexpected shock to, to the labor supply in Miami. And the question is, what happens to the employment and wages of people already there? Whites already there. Blacks already there, other Hispanics already there. And across the board, the answer is nothing at all. So he compares trends in those uh, outcomes for those groups to the same groups in other US cities, otherwise similar, like Atlanta and Los Angeles, that didn't experience this shock. And there's no difference. And the economists are still debating, uh, 23 years after the paper was published, how that could be possible. Uh, what it does suggest is that. Uh, there is uh, much more of a segmentation of labor markets than we imagine if we think of a single labor market with everybody competing for the same jobs. And whatever degree of substitution for natives that these guys did was offset in broad strokes by the complementarity to natives that they had. Uh, I, I want to briefly mention some of my own work in this regard because it involves seasonal workers, which I understand is a topic of interest to Australia, that has just launched a, a seasonal worker. There's another approach to this kind of research, uh, uh, a traditional approach. 
been done since uh, the Paris Paper has been done in, in lots of countries has been to find some area into which a lot of immigrants suddenly went and see what happened there. There's a completely different approach if you're interested in the substitutability or complementarity of natives, uh, natives and, uh, and immigrants, and it's to actually take a bunch of immigrant jobs and offer them to natives and directly measure, okay, what is the supply curve of natives for this particular job? Just a different approach. Uh, there's a natural experiment in the, in the U.S., which is that for our seasonal agricultural labor program, just like Australia's and New Zealand's and all the others that I know of, you have to offer every uh, job that you bring in immigrants for to natives first. You have to demonstrate uh, in the U.S. and the Department of Labor that you have advertised for two months every job uh, in all the unemployment offices of the state where the job is. You have to also advertise in several newspapers. Uh, you have to convince them that uh, any American at all who showed up even 50% of the way into the growing season after you brought in the Mexicans uh, couldn't do the job if you didn't hire them. It has to be like drug or handicapped or something. Anybody else you are required to hire them. Um, so I got data on those guys from the largest user of our uh, seasonal agricultural worker program, which is called the H2 visa. Uh, I'm going to go to North Carolina which is over here. Um, the, the largest user of this program is a network of farms. It's called the North, uh, the North Carolina Growers Association. It's hundreds of farms uh, all over the 100 counties of uh, North Carolina. They bring in almost exclusively Mexican workers to pick stuff, uh, cucumbers, sweet potatoes. Uh, they cut Christmas trees. They pick tobacco. Um, they, in 2011, they brought in about 6,500 of these guys. And as I mentioned, this program is highly regulated. Months in advance, you have to prove to the Department of Labor that you couldn't uh, uh, find any American who would do this job. Uh, you have to advertise. You have to uh, 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 pay a wage, which in the case of North Carolina is a third above minimum wage, so that there's no hint of any downward wage pressure from these guys, and many, many other requirements. It, it's so bureaucratic that farmers really hate this uh, program. Uh, in North Carolina, there are something like 130, 140,000 manual agricultural laborers, and you can see what fraction of those are legal ones. It's something like five percent. People don't use this program unless they absolutely have to, uh, but a lot of them use it, and they keep records on the Americans who show up. So, how many Americans showed up? The raison d'être of all these protections is to protect American unemployment, uh, protect American employment, and that. In 2011, at least, that, that was a major concern and is a major concern in the U.S. Uh, in, uh, in 2011, there were almost half a million people just in North Carolina who were actively seeking work and couldn't find a job. 10.6% of Really bad. Uh, that's so many people that I'll just let that dot represent 250 workers. And that is 468,000 unemployed people. Um, Again, for months, in all the unemployment offices of the, of the state, all 6,500 of these manual picking jobs were advertised. <coughs> How many of these guys do you think were interested in spending 10 hours a day in the sun bending down to pick sweet potatoes? Uh, they got uh, 252 inquiries. Uh, that's uh, in relative size, uh, that's how many. We can go even further than that and, and observe what happened to every one of those workers because for compliance reasons they have to keep track of all of these workers. So let's zoom in on them. Here are the 252 guys that uh, were referred to the North Carolina Growers Association by the unemployment office. There was a period of two to three weeks on average between that and the start of the season that they were hired for. Um, in that two to three week period they lost about a third of them. This is how many people showed up for the first day of work. All of them were hired, by the way. Not, none of them were handicapped or drunk enough to not be hired. Um, a few weeks later, more than two-thirds of them were gone. They quit. A few, a few of them were fired, and almost all of them quit. Uh, this is how many finished the growing season. <laughs> Seven. So the problem was not that these guys did not know about these jobs. It was that they did not want these jobs. Native labor supply for this job is almost zero. We're talking about seven people out of 468,000. Uh, this is such a crazy situation that I, I know exactly how much they spent on advertising in four different newspapers in three states, and the staff time that they spent processing all of these 252 Americans who showed up, and it comes out to at least three times as much as the 
amount that was paid to these guys. So if you think about this for a second, everyone in this scenario would have been better off if the farmers had paid these guys to watch TV all day. Uh, the government had done something else, and the farmers had just hired whoever they wanted. This is an engine for destroying the economic value. Uh, and something else I find strange is that if it's really true that the native labor supply for these jobs is zero, uh, unless we're just going to lose these industries which have not been mechanized, cucumber picking, sweet potatoes, Christmas trees, tobacco picking, conditional on keeping those things, which is available, that means that the only way to have them is with these guys, meaning that uh, these 6,500 Mexicans are adding value to the North Carolina economy, adding to GDP, which in all of the regional economic models has a multiplier effect on GDP and jobs. I estimate with using those regional economic models that every three or four of the Mexicans who comes in generates one U.S. job in another sector, talking about the ripple effects through the entire state. So here you have farmers who are generating jobs in North Carolina being regulated for taking them away. Um, let's move on to feasibility. Because uh, although plenty of people, as you can imagine, uh, think I'm smoking drugs when I talk about this stuff, there is a white supremacist website about me that's really entertaining. I'm sure you Thank you for watching. Even people who don't think that uh, kind of like nod and, and pat me on the shoulder and say, okay, but you know, this is just not good to people. So, as I said, I'm really a political ignoramus. I couldn't have more of a political tenure, but I want to tell you a story about something that people told us was not feasible and turned out to be feasible, and it involves uh, uh, hate. So, uh, three years ago last Saturday, I, I think everybody knows there was a cataclysmic earthquake in Haiti. Uh, the best survey evidence I've seen is that 150,000 people uh, immediately died. The government says two or 300,000. By any measure, it was one of the deadliest earthquakes in the millennium anywhere. Um, here is, uh, here is uh, an unfortunate kid in what used to be the University of Port-au-Prince, captured by a Reuters videographer the day after. Uh, if you squint, you can see he spent the night surrounded by dead bodies. This is somebody who had a really hard time. And a, this was a, a disaster of just uh, orders of magnitude greater than some of the uh, low-level violence that has provoked refugee movements in other parts of the world. But neither this guy nor anybody else in Haiti qualified as a refugee because being a refugee means you belong to a uh, well-defined social group facing the incredible threat of violence. And uh, natural disasters are not included in that. So I, I found it ironic in the days after this uh, earthquake that uh, if I had been wandering around Haiti randomly shooting people who practice voodoo, that would create a legal channel for a few people like this guy to leave. A much bigger cataclysm didn't create a legal channel for even one person to leave. And I'm not talking about stays on deportation. There was a stay on deportation, although at first it didn't apply to anybody who left after the earthquake. Then a year later it was retroactively applied to some of the people who had left after the earthquake. I'm not talking about not deporting people who made it to the U.S. and allowing movement out of Haiti for this reason, the way many refugee movements happen. That can't happen under international law right now. So uh, uh, I hired some consultants who, unlike me, uh, understood law, understood politics, and they spent months reviewing all of the administrative rules governing migration from Haiti, all of the legislative laws governing migration from Haiti, and they made a list of all of the ways that Haitian labor mobility absence of any natural disaster specific law could be changed to facilitate labor mobility between Haiti and the U.S. as a part of the relief and reconstruction effort. You can imagine the, sale, the tough sales job I had to do going around Washington convincing people that these were linked in some way. USAID literally told me they wouldn't meet with me. They literally told me, uh, we don't do immigration here. You know, you're in the wrong building. That's not true at Aussie. I've met with them twice this week. There are all kinds of people in Aussie that's the way that I went from Australia to a leader. Anyway, that's what happened in Washington. Uh, so I went around uh, Congress, uh, the White House, Homeland Security Department, uh, many different congressional delegations, saying, look, uh, uh, how about uh, reversing the ban 
on Haitian participation in the H2 visa, the same agricultural workers program I was telling you before, has a list of eligible countries, and Haiti wasn't on it for historical reasons about uh, fraud in the past. And I said, uh, you know, how could you do this? How could you create uh, almost no employment-based opportunity and work in the U.S. from a country that just suffered this kind of devastation? You're missing an opportunity. What if just 2% of these H2 visas were about 2,000 a year, which for a close neighbor to the U.S. and uh, somebody, the, 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 the country that's been deeply involved in U.S. history, we've invaded and run key four times. That's not that much, 2% of them. The earnings gains to those guys are, are even bigger than the ones for the Tongans in New Zealand that we talked about before. Adding them up across just a few workers over 10 years, you get to hundreds of millions of dollars. And as I pointed out to them, well, that, that rivals the size of the reconstruction aid package for me. And one, it's free. It comes with no fiscal cost, in fact, negative fiscal cost because H2 workers generate tax revenue. And two, this is a totally different kind of income. This money is going directly into the pockets of Haitians and families. This money went almost exclusively to US contractors. My, my colleague, Victor Ramachandra, at the, at the Center for Global Development, has a paper on this subject. He documents that much less than 5% of all the aid to Haiti after the earthquake went to any Haitian at all. Talking about any Haitian person, any Haitian NGO, any Haitian firm, or any part of the Haitian government. They pay for US contractors to do stuff and then leave. I'm not saying that's inherently bad, I'm just saying these are completely different kinds of flows, and this could have development impacts that the other kind might not have at all. Uh, and now we get to the feasibility point. Here's this white guy who, at that point, had never been to Haiti, wandering around DC in people's offices who are busy and they're concerned with the political process. And uh, they said, so let me get this straight. There's an election coming up. There's a racially charged election coming up. And unemployment is 10%. And here you are with this proposal to bring in a bunch of poor black guys. You know, good luck with that. And, and it worked. So we built a coalition, a bipartisan coalition of support for this. So here's one of the letters we got covering a lot of the Florida congressional delegation. And if you know US politics, this is a very strange bedfellows list of people. Here's Bill Nelson, a, a uh, Democratic hero, right next to Marco Rubio, who is a hero of the far-right Tea Party movement. Uh, and someone you might see again as a, as a future uh, Republican presidential candidate, signing the same letter, asking our Homeland Security Secretary to, uh, to exercise her authority to make Haiti eligible for this uh, seasonal agricultural workers program. The rest of the list is also a mix of Democrats and Republicans. And uh, there was a lot of other pressure on her, and she made a wise decision, and she did. Here, here's the list that they released in January of last year, uh, just adding Haiti to the list of eligible countries. And Haitians have already started to move under this visa. There are Haitians uh, working in agriculture in the state of Georgia right now under this visa. Uh, with a, with a, uh, an income they had estimated of something like 15 to 20 times what they could otherwise be making. Um, like I said, huge gains to even tiny movements of people adding up to hundreds of millions of dollars. Pretty good return for adding a word to a list. Not bad at all. And it didn't turn out to be politically impossible. There were a couple of anti-immigrant groups that wrote a blog, you know, how can you do this? But then that was it. It didn't turn out to be a political suicide for anybody. And uh, this is a very, very minor thing. But I, uh, what I hope to by telling the story is to just inspire thinking about, well, what really is politically impossible? And what, uh, what might, might be some knife-edge issues that are less controversial than normal, like helping out in the aftermath of a, of a natural disaster, like particular occupations, say specialist elder care workers, uh, where uh, it's much, much less politically controversial. Not all immigration is the same. And pe people across the political spectrum can support certain kinds of immigration. Um, where could we find opportunities there? So I think it's time to wrap up. Uh, is that right? Maybe one more uh, uh, discussion, if there's time. Uh, well, yeah, we'll have questions. So yeah. Just so briefly. What I want to leave with you, uh, uh, where could there be some opportunities? I talked about low-skill seasonal work, uh, according to Gibson and McKenzie, and I agree with them. One of the most effective at-the-margin things we could do for, uh, for uh, uh, development. I understand that... Uh, the take-up in the Australian Seasonal Agricultural Worker Program was very low at the beginning, something like 50 in the first year. It's now heading toward more like 1,000. 
the skills side, uh, as Stephen mentioned, I'm here studying the Australian Pacific Technical College, which, um, uh, with the motivation that I think a legitimate concern a lot of people have about the skilled worker movement is that a lot, a lot of it is publicly financed at the origin. And when people leave, they take a lot of money with them. Uh, the rhetoric in a lot of policy circles goes right from that to, okay, let's stop the movement. But if you think about it for a second, there are other ways to address that problem. How about innovating in education finance so that there are mechanisms by which people who leave end up paying for their own education? Or destination country firms or destination country governments participate in that finance. That's an alternative to solving the same problem that does not involve stopping people's movement. And I think that Australia Pacific Technical College is a leading uh, model in how to do that. Um, finally, this issue of post-disaster education. I think it's a gaping hole in international law that we have this 70-year-old uh, very well-functioning uh, humanitarian wonderful system for at least semi-systematically dealing with the needs of people fleeing violence. We don't have any such thing for natural disasters, and uh, especially in times of climate change, there's never going to be any person with a sign around their neck that says, I'm a climate migrant. They will all be experience climate change approximately, I shouldn't say all, a lot of them will experience climate change approximately as a natural disaster, as a hurricane or flood. That will be the approximate cause of their movement. And uh, no country has a good unilateral and certainly no multilateral system for dealing with these guys. And uh, something better needs to come about. And what the form of that is going to, to be is, is a subject of a current discussion. I think it could really use a lot more research. And so th this was a very brief summary of nine different papers. Uh, two of them are not finished, but the others are here. And uh, uh, the co author of one of them, uh, Satish, is here. We're not able to talk about any of this. Thank you, Michael. Given us a lot to think about, we've left a bit of time for questions. So, yeah. Thanks. Thanks very much, Michael, for an extremely engaging and interesting discussion. Um, you talked about the gains from uh, shifting people from one place to another. And we've been talking about this for quite a long time and, uh, and debating about whether or not uh, freeing up migration would double world income or only increase it by 50%. And so, I, I'm very pleased to see you moving the question along to how can we make this happen rather than how big are the numbers? And this is the important question. About which I know very little. This is a political question. Yes. So, uh, what I'm interested in is whether or not one could go a little bit further than the sort of individual and ad hoc sort of schemes that you talked about, because although they're very large and important for the people involved, they're small relative to the, you know, the larger gains that have been widely debated. The question is, what could one do on a global and multilateral level? Uh, you mentioned the Refugee Convention. My guess is that uh, the Refugee Convention couldn't be enacted today, as it was in 1951. Um, so that is a bit of a worry for the disaster, possible, possible disaster convention. But I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, what, is, what um, mechanism is there where countries sitting around a table some of which are immigrant-receiving countries, some of which are immigrant-producing countries, can sit down and identify mutual gains that would allow them to set up some sort of agreement that could then expand the migration opportunities that you, you've uh, shown would be so valuable. That's the question. So uh, I, I'm very ignorant about this. I have two ideas to offer. The first is uh, that uh, multilateral discussion of these issues has been extremely uh, problematic slash failed. Uh, after the 1994, I think it was, Cairo Population Summit, there was a strong movement to have a corresponding migration summit that would produce some sort of binding UN resolution. Uh, the United States and Australia and a couple of other countries said, uh, heck no, we're not going to have that. And 
chapter, he asks, should there be a world migration organization analogous to the WTO? And the answer is a resounding no, there should not be a WMO, because some of the uh, bedrock principles of the WTO, like most favored nation status, uh, will never be, are never going to pass the political lab test. And he argues for uh, patchwork uh, bilateral agreements being the order of the day going forward, at least for the medium term. Uh, it's pretty compelling to me, but I don't have any
And do you have any sort of lessons learned or any insights that you could share on the benefits or the costs of those, those arrangements that America has with Palau, FSM, and Marshall Islands? I only know the FSM agreement a, a, a little bit, and forgive me for being really uh, ignorant of this region. Uh, Randy Aki uh, is a, a Hawaiian uh, guy at uh, Tufts University who has a lot of research on this, and he, he got Micronesian census data. And the, the natural experiment there is, uh, it, it, it sounds like you know, uh, uh, unlimited labor mobility between Micronesia and the United States. I understand it was a quid pro quo for a military base. If you let us put this base here, any of you can have unlimited duration work visas, although they're not citizens. It's not like Puerto Rico. Uh, they can just uh, uh, live and work uh, uh, indefinitely anywhere in the United States. Most of them go to Hawaii and Guam, as I understand. Uh, so what he shows is that this has caused a huge convergence between the living standards of people in those U.S. territories, between the living standards of Micronesians in those, living, uh, in those U.S. territories and Micronesians living in Micronesia, which is exactly what you'd expect in the simplest economic model, that when there are huge barriers between labor, two labor markets and then you eliminate them, uh, there would be some equilibration of the wages you'd have to pay people, uh, uh, for example, to stay in Micronesia or to get over to, uh, to, to Hawaii. Um, I, I don't know of, uh, of research on non-economic aspects of the, of the, the effects on Micronesia. Uh, uh, you know, people talk about a lot of doomsday scenarios. Uh, is the country going to empty out of men? Uh, what's going to happen to the children of people who are partial household migrants? Uh, do you know of studies on that? Because I don't know. No, just sorry. We'll, cause we'll okay, okay. Sorry, sorry. 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 I, I, I ramble no, on and on. No, no, not at all. We will we'll invite you to. But this check, check out Randy Hackney. Yeah, that's my one suggestion. It's AKE. Uh, one quick piece of information and a quick question will make me a comment. Um, back in the, I think it's uh, the Jackson Review of Aid in Australia, back in the 70s, 84, It examined the question of whether uh, migration movements and, aid, uh, and uh, refugee movements in particular should be treated as a purpose of development of aid policy. And you can see that the principle did, did calculations of the kind you've got what the equivalent was of the existing refugee program and so on. Uh, but then in practice, we withdrew and kept them as separate streams. But intellectually, the case was conceded in this major review of Australian aid back in the 80s. What was it called? Jackson. Jackson, the report on aid in Australia. Uh, the second point, you could practical on the political economy, on how to make progress here and grappling with the multilateral issue of whether you convert an IOM into a world migration organisation or whatever. Um, I'm, I'm encouraged by Balding's law, which is if it exists, it's possible. Uh, so it's something like the European Union exists, the European community exists, which is a migration zone. Uh, there's countries that have their borders and their wars and everything else. That is, the whole of Europe has become a migration organisation. Uh, initiatives of similar kinds were discussed, of course, at the recent APEC meetings, particularly with trilateral countries up in the north, China and uh, Korea and Japan, about a skilled uh, migration zone. So, skilled, okay. skilled migration, I think, in this case. Or you've got examples like the Indian Ministry for Overseas Affairs now, which has decided to do a, 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 a sort of bilateral negotiation. Instead of trying to do regionals even, let alone globals, it is going around to about 20 key countries and trying to negotiate new border arrangements for everything from visas, qualifications, recognition, to uh, temporary you know, residency rights and so forth to allow the you know, aim of the Indian skilled population to become the world's exporter of skills uh, to be realised. And it's doing it very cleverly by a series of bilateral negotiations across key allied countries that might be future recipients of Indian skilled labour. So there's, there's sort of steps in the direction because of the end the logic is. And, that might, and, and the journey might become the destination. Yes. That, that it might be a permanently shifting mosaic of such bilateral agreements, perhaps never eventuating in anything else. Good. But the, the, thank you, this is fascinating. Okay, so I think we have three more which I'm going to take, and then you can respond, Michael, make some final remarks. <coughs> we'll be out of time. So there's Rajan here. Okay, there's one there. Did you want to? Right, one here and one. So I've got four very quick comments or questions. Uh, thank you, Michael, for the presentation. As I just congratulate you for pushing this agenda for Uh, one of the concerns raised often is regarding the development impact of mutancies on the source country, like uh, fueling inflation, also the dust disease effect, 
And also, when you say like mass migration might be possible, you are responding to the uh, labor demand of the destination country, not to your own country, right? So it might change often. So uh, what do you think like the development impact of this migration can have on the uh, domestic country? And there is also concern like the, because due to this migration and the the economy is more towards like consumption oriented and investment is like is not taking place and the government should step in to have the policies to encourage investment. Okay, so let's hold the macro impacts on the front. Uh, um, a couple of years ago, someone came to camera, I can't remember their name, but they gave a very similar talk where they talked about the um, benefits and how, how there were lots of benefits to uh, open migration and um, very few costs. And I didn't need to come. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but he then brought up this, uh, well, he did a very kind of different approach, but um, he brought up this point, though, at the end where he said that, um, like, he brought up the case of um, Puerto Rico, right, where they can pretty much freely immigrate from Puerto Rico to the US and improve their living standards. But he pointed out that um, even with that sort of free, that, uh, those open borders, that there weren't a lot of people moving from Puerto Rico to um, to the US. He kind of concluded that even if you, you were to uh, bring this uh, policy in, um, it's not necessarily going to have the labor flows that um, you would expect. This one I so different. But you okay, want to hold yeah. Puerto Rico? Yeah. I'm similar to the question you just raised. And, uh, I think um, if you look at the country, according to your calculation, it's, it seems that there's assumption that uh, everybody who will come to this country to work and would be able to find a job and then Not contribute everybody. to the Typical. Okay. Typical is different Yeah. Um, yeah, typical. And then uh, the main, uh, one of the main issues discussed a lot in Europe is that uh, in 1970s and 1960s, uh, Britain has imported a lot of workers to fill in the market. Uh, the labor market uh, shortage, and uh, people didn't want to work in, in the textile industry and all these industries. But then one of the problems was that uh, they import uh, workers, and then later the family have to join them, and their family may not work. And then they had, in the end, because of the income issues and the cost, would be might be higher than actually if you only calculate people who work. So, um, so. So, and, and also not only financial costs, but also the kind of the social cost related to uh, people not being able to integrate into the society. So usually, um, somebody probably asked me, what, how do you deal with the social impacts uh, after the people being from the developing country with such big contrast to uh, when they are not in the world? Okay, social impacts integration last. No? Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll just point out, I think you were talking about George Borders. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he was talking about George Borders. I got through, yeah. Uh, should I go ahead? So, take it up. Take uh, it So, for the, this paper called The Police Premium, I, I wrote with Lamp Fridge and I thought it was going to go this worth a look because we, what we do, uh, I alluded to at the beginning, what we do is we take a, a representative survey data from 42 countries comparing individual economic outcomes to people born in those countries who are in the U.S. and then make all plausible adjustments for selection on unobservable characteristics just maybe against migration. So uh, I think that's how I can say that the observably identical Haitian living in the U.S., Haitian-born, Haitian-educated, 35-year-old male with 9 to 12 years of education who makes 6 to 7 times uh, as much real in the U.S. That ratio for Puerto Rico is 1.5, which is only 10% more than the ratio between U.S. states. That is, the observably identical person from Mississippi working in New York uh, in real terms makes about 40% more. Uh, that, that's sort of the, the premium you have to pay somebody to get them to leave Mississippi and work somewhere else. It's barely higher for Puerto Rico. So I, I, I don't know why more people would leave Puerto Rico. That, that's part of what happens when there is an integrated labor market. If you want people to stay in Puerto Rico, you have to pay them more. Uh, when it's not the case, like Guatemala, the ratio is four. You don't have to pay people more to stay in Guatemala. Uh, there's a recent paper showing from the same thing from another side, which is that huge immigration of people uh, after Hurricane Mitch hit Honduras caused upward pressure on, on wages, and it's because to, that that's what happens when you further integrate labor markets. So I, I mean, first of all, there has been a huge movement of Puerto Ricans out. There are more Puerto Ricans in metropolitan New York City 
that's why there isn't more movement. Uh, there, there will always be some people who don't want to move, and that's what this premium is for. We're compensating them for something. But uh, Puerto Rico is, uh, is uh, we, we did the same thing for Guam, by the way, which also has no, uh, also has census data and also has no uh, 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 labor market barrier with the U.S., and they're also the ratio is 1.5. This is about as low as it gets. So that's why Guamians don't move to the U.S., because it's not, it gives everybody a no person can't get that. Um, so about uh, uh, integration. So as I said, I, I, I don't have any papers about this. I have not studied immigration, and so I'm a consumer of this literature rather than uh, any, any kind of producer. Uh, what I do know is that uh, if there is, uh, uh, if it is the case that uh, my family members can't work, who I brought over, and that is such a damage to us as a family, as household income, our whole living standards, that we would have been better off not coming, then either uh, I was wildly misinformed about what the what our circumstances would be, or I am much more interested in uh, non-economic amenities of being in the UK, like political freedom. Uh, and I, I, I don't see any other scenario. So in the second case, okay, that's a, that's a decision that the family made. They wanted political freedom more than they wanted economic opportunities. In, in the first case, it, it's really hard for me to believe, uh, especially now in this world, that people who, people who migrate tend to follow other migrants. The biggest determination of, of current migration flows are past migration flows. You can get on Skype, Viber, email with anybody right now, look at them face to face, and find out what the prospects are for your wife. And if that is so bad, that, you, that you're going to end up being better off. I think, as a rule, people aren't going to go. And again, this is a this is a statement of the rule, not about everybody at all. I'm sure there are huge exceptions to this. But as a percentage of the total, uh, 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 thinking that people, uh, because they don't know what they're getting into, or they don't know what these rules are, are actually making themselves better off by moving, is, is something, is an assertion that I think bears the burden of, of proof, uh, although not impossible. They would mitigate the effects. The things you're talking about would mitigate the effects, but uh, would not uh, would not challenge the statement that I think that the gains are still substantial. Um, uh, about the macro impacts, who was asking about the macro impacts? Yes. You were asking about the macro impacts. Thank you. I, I also don't have any research on that. I, I am uh, also a consumer of the macro literature because everything I've done has been micro survey based. So. Uh, this has been a concern expressed for Haiti, uh, where uh, uh, remittances are so large that uh, uh, people often say things like remittances are a third of GDP, which isn't quite right because remittances are not in GDP. <laughs> so it's more precise to say the amount of remittances that are going to Haiti is an amount so large that it is as large as a third of GDP. Uh, and that, that means if there is a multiplier effect at all, and certainly there is, Nobody's ever measured this very well, and I think that's actually a research frontier in this uh, area. If there's any kind of multiplier effect, and there must be because almost all of Asian remittances are spent on locally produced goods and services. They're not spent on Korean flat screen TVs. They're spent on food, uh, medical care, education, transportation. Um, that's their survey evidence from Manuel Orozco on that, uh, the Inter-American Dialogue. Uh, there has to be some multiplier, meaning that the effect of this on the Haitian economy could be half of the economy, could be more than half of the economy. And if that's causing inflation, okay, it's going to offset the benefits, but if the benefit is generating on the order of half the economic activity that's going on in Haiti, it would take a lot of inflation to offset that kind of benefits. Uh, this could be a more concerning in other settings. I'm just saying uh, we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't, uh, uh, we should be careful about thinking that the, the macroeconomic effects are going to be so large to offset things in these kind of settings. Um, uh, my reading of the literature is that there is such an effect that has been documented in large that flows are associated with inflation. But I don't think anywhere it's been demonstrated that that anything close to offsets the gains that the, the, uh, the origin economy uh, experiences. In the same way that uh, uh, prices in Montana a rural state of the U.S. where I went to high school are higher than if it weren't participating in the U.S. economy. Sure. But Montana would certainly be much poorer if we got rid of both of those effects. The effect 
or several minutes ago. No, not at all. Not at all. Uh, before uh, we thank Michael uh, for that wonderful presentation and discussion, just two points. One, I uh, hope to see you through the year. We have a number of seminars and conferences. And two, of course, you know, we invited Michael not just because it's an interesting topic, but it's one we're uh, engaged in as a centre. Uh, we've done some work on the seasonal worker program. We're very interested in comparisons with New Zealand. We certainly think there's more Australia can do, especially for uh, Pacific, promoting labour mobility in the Pacific. And uh, we look forward to getting your advice on that, Michael, and possible collaboration, more collaboration along the lines you did with Satish. Thanks a lot. Uh, but for now, that was a uh, very thought-provoking, uh, indeed inspirational, uh, and also inspirational presentation and very interesting discussion. So please join with me in thanking Michael.